So first off, I'm sure everyone here will join me in thanking you for the delicious food that we've all been enjoying over the past 48 hours. You're welcome. Um, Thank you. And uh, what you may not have known was that Wolfgang had catered a large part of this event and owns an enormous catering business among uh, many other components in your global food empire. So starting as a humble restaurateur, you've now got 25, as I understand it, owned and operated fine dining restaurants around the world, including three that have Michelin stars. You have 79 fast, casual, and casual restaurants in airports and sports venues. Where did you hear that? Well, okay. <laughs> okay. And in addition to this, they're selling 7 million products on <laughs> the Home Shopping Network. Is that right? Thank you. So the, the thrust of the conversation that I want us to have today is really behind the scenes of Wolfgang Puck, the famous chef. I want to understand Wolfgang Puck the business magnate, and this incredible empire that you've built in your time since uh, wisely coming to America <laughs> in the 80s. So tell us how this happened. Walk us back to Austria and sort of the pivotal moments along the way. Well, I think it really, I got lucky in a way. So I was born in Austria, and I had a very difficult childhood. My stepfather was like a terrorist. He terrorized me and my mom and everybody. So when I was 14, I decided to move out of the house. I moved 50 miles away and started my apprenticeship as a cook. And uh, the reason was we didn't have the money and I wasn't as smart as DA, so I had to start to cook. I did that in uh, a little town called Villach for three years. Then I moved to France worked in some of the best restaurants in France, like Beaumanier, Hotel de Paris in Monaco, Maxime's in Paris. And then I came, I moved to New York because everybody told me, you go to America, you make a lot of money, and it's the land of opportunities. And I arrived in New York and I didn't really like it. And I lived in Monaco for a year and I really loved it, and I love auto racing. So somebody offered me a job in Indianapolis. And I said, I'm going to Indianapolis. I said, it's going to be like Monaco, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I arrived there, I said, oh, fuck, this is Monaco. This is Indianapolis, nothing like uh, what I thought it would be. But unfortunately, I ran out of money. I had no more money to go anywhere else. So, I started to cook in this restaurant called La Tour, which is a fancy French restaurant and, uh, with all Christophe silver and everything. And the only sad part was there, I think in one year I spent there, I cooked more steak well done than in the rest of my life. <laughs> so people were not really appreciating great food. And even when uh, you saw them eating it, they put a fork in the steak and then cut it into pieces and then put the fork, uh, the knife down and ate with the right hand. I mean, it was such a different experience for me. I said, wow, Indianapolis is certainly an interesting place. <laughs> but it was a great place for an immigrant because nobody immigrates to Indiana. So when I went to Hammond, Indiana to get my green card, I was the only person there. <laughs> And the lady asked me, you know, what I do? I said, I'm a cook. 
I said, I cook. And she said, you, would you come to my house and cook one day? I said, if you give me the green card, I'll show up. <laughs> and she gave me the green card. So it was really simple. And then after a year in Indianapolis, I got my green card. I moved to Los Angeles. And I became the chef at a restaurant called Ma Maison. And I didn't know much about business. The only thing was the first paycheck I got there I went to the bank, the restaurant was on Melrose, and the bank was right next to it on La Cienega. And the banker said, sorry, there's no money in the bank. I said, wow, I just quit my job, left Indianapolis, and now I'm in a place with no money. So Patrick Terai, who was then the owner of the restaurant, gave me part of the restaurant. But I always wanted to be on my own. So after years, like when I started, we grossed like $18,000 a month. Five and a half years later, when I left, we grossed over $300,000 a month in the same restaurant. And I got lucky for the timing because I became good friends with Orson Welles, who loved to eat, and Billy Wilder, and Sidney Poitier. So we had a lot of Hollywood people come to the restaurant. And then I really said, I want to open my own restaurant and be in charge. I don't want to go to Patrick or anybody to ask for a raise. And so in 1981, I found this place up on Sunset where the rent was really cheap because down on the boulevard at that time, you still had hookers all over the place, so nobody wanted to go there. Certainly not <laughs> a great restaurant. But I thought, you know, it's much cheaper than on Melrose Avenue, the rent, so I got this uh, place, which was a, a, a Russian restaurant called Kafka's, and I rented it for $2,200 a month. And I wanted to be different. So I said, if I want to manage the restaurant, and I'm somewhere in the back of, in the kitchen, I won't see anything what's going on in the dining room. So I said, we're going to build the kitchen in the dining room, have a totally open kitchen. And I know to you all out there, probably today, you see almost every restaurant with an open kitchen. But at that time, there was no restaurant with an open kitchen, really. And so we started out, I wanted to have a little neighborhood restaurant. And uh, the first day I turned around, we had 160 people. The restaurant was full of people. I remember. I ran out of vegetables, I ran out of half the menu, and we just gave every, everybody big dessert platters, so they went home somehow happy. But the restaurant was an enormous success, and uh, so much that like six months later, some Japanese people came by and they said, Wolfgang, you want to open a restaurant in Japan, in Tokyo? And I said, well, I cannot even run one restaurant well, how can I uh, open one now so far away? And and I forgot about them, and they came back like uh, three or four months later and said, showed me the plan of the restaurant of Spago Tokyo. I didn't uh, depose the name or anything. And then finally, they told me, you know, we're going to open Spago with you or without me. So I said, let's open it with me, it's better. <laughs> <laughs> so we opened Spago in Tokyo, and then uh, we opened Shino in Maine. I thought, I'm tired of cooking the same food everywhere, look at the same place. So I said, I want to do Chinese food. <laughs> so in 1983, we opened Chinois, and it was the first fusion restaurant. So also with an open kitchen, but nobody really, a Caucasian chef started to do 
Asian food. I got influence from Japan, from China, from Southeast Asia, and so forth. But it was really a groundbreaking restaurant at that time, just like Spargo was, with a wood-burning fired pizza oven in the restaurant, but with different dishes. Like, still people today said, oh, we want your smoked salmon pizza. But if I go to Singapore at Spargo, and they said, how come you don't have your smoked salmon pizza? So I have to make it for them wherever we are. So there are really certain signature dishes we had already in the 80s, which are still popular today. And I always tell people, you know, it's a mixture of tradition and innovation. So that's really an important part. And because my son is here, no, not because my son is here, but I must say we were a team with my ex-wife Barbara, the mother of my son, our son Byron. She actually built all the restaurants at that time. So we were really like a family operation. And I still feel the same thing today. So when, when you talk about inventing some of these dishes and even combining traditions into the concept of a restaurant, I think it really gets at you as an artist. And I know when we've had conversations, you've said one day I'm gonna retire and I'm gonna go be a sculptor somewhere and I just yeah. wanna make sculptures. So there's clearly something deep in you that loves creating and inventing. What is the connection that you've always seen between food as an art form and the other arts? I think being in LA, obviously, you've had so much exposure to artists of different varieties, but I even remember hearing that the original menu for Spago, David Hockney, had done designs on and stuff. So how did you tap into this connection with other parts of culture? You know, I was always interested in the arts, and I was always interested. I became friends with Andy Warhol or David Hockney or Bob Rauschenberg and people like that who always loved food. And I always said, I want to be an artist, a sculptor or a painter, but... I said, you know, to get that good like these guys are, I think I'm too old already, you know, so forget about it. So I really think cooking is part of it a craft and part of it artistry. It really depends what you do. A lot of it is repetition, just like an artist who makes prints in a way, you know. They make one template and then they make 20 or 50 or more out of it. But I think the artistic side for me and the creative side of me is always the most important part. And, and Byron, as your father walked through this amazing history, what, what were you doing at this time? I mean, obviously you were a child at the beginning, <laughs> but you've had this interesting path outside of the Puck Empire and then back into it and now are a part of the operation. So be curious to understand how your experience is growing up in and outside of this and watching your dad inform the way that you think about what you guys run today. Yeah, I mean, it's the whole reason I got into it to begin with, and I like your comparison between art and food as well, because that's what, initially, as a very young child, I always wanted to paint, and my joke nowadays is that I can paint on plates, and I'm very grateful for that opportunity. It's amazing, but being around the restaurants growing up all the time as a kid made it feel like a family experience. It always felt like home for me, so that influenced my path when I was around 16 or so, deciding what I wanted to do, what I wanted to be, the first thing I did was move to London. And uh, I worked for Nobu Matsuhisa in London. That was absolutely amazing. Uh, very different experience than working in a family restaurant where you know everyone around you and everything feels very comfortable when you're thrown into a completely new country and you know no one. Um, a, lot of, a lot of things change and you kind of realize what you're made of. Um, but from there, uh, getting the opportunity to study in Spain, France, Seattle, Chicago, New York, and working for 
amazing chefs in between those places, from Eric Repair to Grant Ackett's, uh, the Roca Brothers, Guy Savoie, all of those kind of, it's like a, trying to take a confluence of all of those different experiences in my life and bring them back to the Wolfgang Puck Company where occasionally I can offer up maybe a different piece of advice or something that I lived through that not necessarily everyone in the room has. So let, let me ask you a, a weird question about your father. You just mentioned a bunch of chefs yeah, who are... Should I leave? Yeah, yeah, leave. <laughs> okay. A bunch of world... Really interesting one. <laughs> you have to stay. <laughs> you, you mentioned a series of world-renowned chefs with Michelin stars and restaurants in Vegas and Paris and Tokyo and just sort of like your dad. Why is he the, the celebrity? I mean, people know Nobu, people have heard of Guy Savoie and stuff, but but Wolfgang Puck is an institution, and what do you think along the way made this more than just a restaurant, made it into a brand and a recognizable identity that people everywhere are familiar with? I think beyond, beyond just the food side and creating amazing dishes day in and day out, it's the hospitality side of things. Working myself in Spago Beverly Hills and Hotel Bel Air more recently, managing those floors, I still see him in there every single day. And I think that was something he put forward in the very beginning and starting this company was being people-centric and always being guest-centric and making yourself available to your guests at all point in time. Um, and that's still something that we continue in the company to this day. And I think that's what gave it that extra edge ultimately, mm -hmm. was going out in the dining room. That's not something you get to see at every single restaurant, a chef actually coming out and making the time to converse with you as if you're Orson Welles or Billy Wilder. Um, and everyone was treated in the most egalitarian manner possible. Everyone felt like they were Orson Welles or Billy Wilder as well. And I think that's what helped ultimately propel the Wolfgang Puck. Now, on, on that topic, Wolfgang, I mean, I can attest to it myself. Every time I go to the Bel Air Hotel or to Spago, you're there. If you're in town, you're there. And every night, I figure you must be driving around oh, in your car. Three of, <laughs> the three of you, sure. <laughs> sure. But, but Something about that, I mean, I understand the idea of the hospitality being central to the experience, but is it also a management style? I mean, we just talked about you going out to Harvard Business School, and you said you learned a lot about how to decentralize your operation. Uh -huh. But you being there every night, shaking hands, talking to people, seems like it's incredibly central. So how do you, as you move into the future and expand this, how do you keep that level of human touch everywhere that you can't be? You know, there is a word called passion. If you have passion in life, whatever you do, if you make clothes, shoes, drive a race car, whatever, if you're really passionate about it and you really enjoy it then and you get good at it, I think there is no better place to be for me than in our restaurants. You know, I really love it. And I was very worried when I was about 35 years old. I said, one day I'm gonna be tired of food. I don't wanna see food. I don't wanna go to the restaurant anymore like I knew older chefs at that time. But I think for me, the food industry carried on in so many different directions. Like we opened Spago, Chinois. Then we opened restaurants overseas in Singapore, in Istanbul and so forth and learn about the cultures there, learn about the food from this country. So to me, keeping my interest up and being always excited about new things and never waiting really to change. You know, I love change, I love innovation. I also like tradition, but we have to find the right media to mix together 
tradition and innovation because we all know some of you who are from Los Angeles, when we opened Spago, we had Le Dom, we had L'Orangerie, we had Ma Maison, Le Restaurant, Le Pistro, Chasen. All these restaurants are gone. One of the reasons is they never changed their menu. They always kept the same thing. And for me to always have the same thing, it's very boring. I tell everybody it's much easier and much cheaper to change the menu than change the wife. So <laughs> I keep the same wife and change the menu. Well put. Um, <laughs> That's something for you to learn. Well, <laughs> uh, let me ask you about another aspect of controlling the quality. Mm. You've diffused the brand um, to places in airports, to quick serve, you know, at Gelson's supermarket, and your name's on it. Yeah. But obviously, when you're operating a sort of kiosk in multiple supermarkets around California, you can't be there every day. How have you thought about going sort of lower market or going to a broader, lower price point audience without compromising what you stand for? Well, you know, lower prices doesn't mean lower quality. You can get the same Caesar salad as Spago as you get at the airport. We make the dressing, <laughs> they buy the same salad, so it's basically the same. Yes, you can get the pizza there, maybe not a smoked salmon pizza or a truffle pizza. Or you can get pasta at the airports or in some of our places in Disney World and so forth. But I think it's really we try to do the best at that level. At the beginning, I was very confused almost because I always tell people, we get the vegetables from the farms, we get the best fish, we know the people who produce the food for us, and then I was gonna go into the frozen food business. And the funny thing was, it was one day, actually Johnny Carson, who was the host of The Tonight Show, he came to the restaurant and uh, one day he picked up 10 pizzas to go home. And the next Friday, another 10 pizza. I said, Johnny, what are you going to do with all these pizzas? He said, I put them in the freezer. I said, shit, I'm never going to give you a, another pizza again. You put my pizza in the freezer. And then I said, huh, there are more than, there are pizzas in the freezer case already. So I tried out the pizza. The first one, I cooked them totally. It didn't come out right at home. It was too, too uh, cooked already. And then I cooked one half, and I said, you know what, Johnny is right, it's not that bad. It's just almost the same, people wouldn't know the difference. So I get interested in so many different things. The same thing is with pots and pans. I was friendly with George Foreman, who invented, or he didn't invent, he sold this grill. And a friend of mine was running that business for him, and I said, shit, if a boxer can do that, I should be able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I never was as successful as him on top of it, so maybe I'm in the wrong profession, see? <laughs> so, so for both of you, as you think about the next era of the business, this is a time of immense change in what people want to eat, how they want to eat it, how it gets delivered. There's this concept of cloud kitchen. Shout out to Chris somewhere who told me to ask about cloud kitchens. Okay. But the whole supply chain around food to the restaurant and then to the consumer seems to be shifting. So. What does your business do to adapt to this changing set of models? And how, how do you think about some of these trends? Well, for me, it's easy. I have a son. Let's <laughs> adapt to it. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Uh, 
I think it's interesting. I think moving into 2020, millennials have reached this kind of highest spending cap where we're deciding a lot of what the American economy is putting out in terms of the goods that are sold. So um, it's really interesting from the restaurant perspective when you've been catering to a specific generation for 30 years at this point that you're kind of shifting into this younger generation that genuinely wants different things. I think it's 74% of millennials, roughly, are willing to invest and engage in businesses that not only invest in the local community, but offer health-conscious options and operate at a sustainable level as well. And if we want to keep progressing in this society, that's something that we're going to have to find ourselves catering to. Um, and it's ultimately for the betterment of society as well. So it's not only good for, for everyone, it's good for the business as well. And you'd mentioned something forward. really interesting when we spoke on the phone about Spago uh, approaching carbon neutrality at some point yeah. in the future. What does that look like for a restaurant to be carbon neutral? <laughs> Walk us through the thought it's, process. It's incredibly difficult from the point of, of sacrificing what you do from a menu perspective. So if let's say 75% of our menu is including meats or fish, anything along those lines, those are one of the biggest contributors to greenhouse gases that currently exist. Um, if we're willing to make changes to that, obviously the, the kind of one-off quick and simple thing would be like remove all the meat, right? You become a plant-based restaurant. That's not something we can do. We would alienate an entire clientele that we've already gained and a lot of people that we want to gain as well. Um, so it's very difficult from that standpoint to reach full carbon neutrality through making changes to our menu when you're sacrificing the core competency of your business at the same time. Um, that being said, there's many other things we can do to kind of reach a carbon neutral level. Um, I think a good way, but it's a, slightly a cop out in certain senses, are going after carbon credits and helping the environment through planting trees um, and other methods of receiving carbon credits. But in general, we need to be doing more in-house, whether that be setting up water filtration systems so we're not recycling all of these glass bottles every single year and incurring those costs. Whether it be looking at new and different styles of energy to help us in the kitchen start and shut off times for machines in order to save energy. There's a, there's a multitude of ways in which we can reach carbon neutrality. The issue is, is going forward also, I don't think it's something that is always seen as the most economically beneficial for your business also. So government obviously is going to be ending up, I think, playing a very strong role in that. And you hear people talk about carbon taxes yeah. and such. So I don't see businesses, I'd, I'd love to see businesses move in that direction. That is most certainly a dream of mine. Are there new ingredients or new sources of ingredients that you guys are excited about? I mean, I'm, I'm an investor in Memphis Meats, so I'm enthusiastic about the clean meat movement, as people call it. But Beyond Meat had a phenomenal public offering this year, a huge success on the stock market. And it seems that this is spawning a series of other competitors that are trying to do interesting new ingredients. Are you guys playing with any of these? or? Thinking you know, about, yeah. We play a little bit with it. We started like 40 years ago really to help small farmers and small growers to stay in business because we have all these factory farms for vegetables, for animals, whatever. And I always say we want to see how you treat what we eat. And to me, it's important to have both. And there is a way for both, you know. If somebody wants to have a hamburger with uh, the impossible meat, 
it's not a hamburger to me, but if they are happy, you know, I'm okay with it. So I think for me still, moderation is the most important part, you know, and the way we live. Do we need a steak 16 ounces at 10 o'clock at night? No. I, if I eat, I eat four ounces of beef and I'm perfectly happy and have the best quality. It's not about quantity, it's about the quality. And I think in America, often in food, it's about quantity. If we would eat smaller portions of beef, one third or half of the cattle, we wouldn't have to raise it. Sure. Um, I want to close out uh, with one final question for you guys. This conference, uh, to, to Mark's testament, is uh, so much a celebration of Los Angeles. And you've built this incredible business and reputation from Los Angeles, which over the time that you've been here has become an increasingly powerful global city. So as a food city, outside of the Wolfgang Puck restaurants, what are your favorite restaurants or dishes in Los Angeles? Folks who have flown in, if they can grab one thing before they head to LAX, what should it be? We're incredibly biased. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, one thing at Spago and then one thing elsewhere. Okay. What do you think? You know, I'm such a creature of habit. It's like scary almost. Uh, like when I go for Japanese food, for the last 35 years or 32 years, I go to Matsuhisa. And I know there are many great Japanese restaurants downtown or around there. There is one called Shikri or whatever. Shiki, yeah. Shiki. Cannon Boulevard is On fantastic. Cannon is amazing. But I go where I know the people and I'm friends with Nobu and Yoko and everybody. The same thing with Italian food. I generally go to Angelini. I know there's Madeo. I know there is Capo and many other places around. But I think... And I tell our customers, too, why you go there so much? I said, because they know me, they are friends. And I think for any customer out there, if you want to become a regular somewhere, people will treat you, they know your name, they know what you like. So it's really an important part to have your favorite places and then visit new ones, too. Now, Byron doesn't work as much as I do. <laughs> so he goes out more, he knows more about the new restaurants. <laughs> okay, one, one recommendation for you, it, Byron. He tells me always his restaurant research. I'm not so sure. <laughs> you didn't have to quite take it there, but okay, okay. fair enough. Um, actually, funny enough, the first thing that popped into my head was Angelini yeah. as well. That's, I think, an absolute staple of Los Angeles. And I choose no other restaurant. Angelino looking... Street on Beverly. Yeah. Exactly, yes. yeah. I choose no other restaurant if I'm looking for classic, traditional, and expertly executed Italian food. That being said, there's a new wave of restaurants popping up. I think the Arts District downtown is making huge waves in the food industry right now, especially in Los Angeles. So there's places like you'll see like uh, Bavel, for instance, downtown, have a fantastic experience there. Um, and all these restaurants are kind of moving into this smaller plate, you get to try out the entire menu. And I, I really enjoy that. When I go, I don't want just a steak and an appetizer. I really want to see what the whole menu has to offer. Uh, another restaurant like that is Cali, K-A-L-I, um, also on Beverly. Um, and then, what else? Republic by Walter Mansky is fantastic. Old That's great. You're in. giving everyone a lot here. So. Perfect. That's great. <laughs> well, look, thank you guys so much. This has been a real pleasure. Give it thank up for Wolfgang you. and Byron Puck. <laughs>